0: Hi everyone and welcome back to Labelling the Disabling podcast where we call out what really disables people with disability or people who are disabled. I'm joined again today by my wonderful co-host Ed Burt, the Chief Operating Officer of the Disability Trust. Hey everybody. And today we are joined by Ben Gauntlet who is the Disability Discrimination Commissioner. Thank you for joining us today Ben. Oh, thanks very much for having me ed what did yeah. you have well yeah it's,
1: it's gonna i'm i'm really excited to have you on the show ben um and we want to hear uh, a bit about you as a person the man behind the myth if you will because um you've got quite a quite a reputation um being the disability discrimination commissioner for Australia now since your appointment in 2019. You, you've got an incredible sort of resume, I've got to say, um, for people who don't know about you and about your history. Uh, as as um, a, a man who's worked in New York, in Oxford, uh, who's, who's represented Australia, uh, in, in Geneva, um, in relation to the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, as a Masters of Law, Uh, if that's the correct correct terminology, from from New York Uni, and I believe you've worked with the Solicitor General Justice Hain at the Supreme Court in Australia, in Canberra. So you've got an amazing sort of uh, resume and background. And and as a man with a disability yourself, you're what I would call a a high achiever anyway, regardless. And we want to hear about your your life experience and the work you're doing to support uh, diversity and inclusion in the workplaces around Australia. So yeah, looking forward to the chat today. Welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your life journey in terms of um, you acquired a disability when you were a teenager, is that right? I had a spinal cord injury uh, playing rugby when I was 16. Um, that was in 1995, so some time ago. And yeah, I
2: think the best way of putting it is, is I've traveled a relatively winding path mm. and lived in a few different locations around the world. Justice Haynes, Justice of the High Court, bit different from the Solicitor General but um, within that which is a different role but within I guess each of those roles obviously disability has been um, a key interaction both in the workplace but also in the community which I was living at the time and that's definitely shapes who you are as a person the views that you have.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about that Ben because you just said that you had a spinal cord injury in 95 and because I've read a bit about you I know that you were probably in your late teen years then, how do you think it has, you just said it shapes you, how, how do you think that's happened or what what can you tell us about that?
2: I think when you have a disability as a teenager or you have an accident that leads to disability as a teenager, you probably get a perception of the world that's slightly different because you don't see the world from the perspective of an adult, although you might think you do, you often I think take time to adjust in different ways to certain issues. I always was a reasonably understanding of people who can overlook uh, design flaws in the built environment. Because if you'd asked me after I had my accident whether I lived in a flat house at my parents' place, I would have said, of course. Now, I didn't realize there were three, I've always overlooked there were three steps to the front door. Yep. there was a step in the middle of the house, that there was a narrow doorway. Uh, those little issues were so easy to overlook. And so whilst I have moderate level of sympathy for sort of people who overlook these issues, it is sort of a, a small example of how you can take a perspective that's quite different to what others would take, because yeah. you did see the world differently. And so to have to adjust to things like the need to find accessibility and reasonable adjustments and things of that nature is uh, is something which you do realise it does take time to learn and to be knowledgeable about.
1: That idea of reasonable adjustments, I think it's something that is becoming better understood in the workplaces across Australia. I know it's certainly something that the Human Rights Commission is, is pushing a greater understanding around and there is at the moment a great workforce, great pressures on the workforce in terms of getting talent and people into work. Do you think that that is improving in terms of people's understanding around the need for reasonable adjustments and the benefits to employers of making reasonable adjustments? What's your view on that, having been involved in this area for the last... I, I
2: think there's, a, there's an appetite to learn
1: is the best way of putting it, Yeah than necessarily having reached the end stage
2: of a journey. It's a long process to improve, and discussions about reasonable adjustment cannot be divorced from discussions about job customisation. They cannot be divorced about making sure that people fit the role they're recruited for, about the awareness of other colleagues and support structures in the workplace. And so often people think of reasonable adjustment as sort of a piece of software or a change to the built environment. In reality, it's a part of a a range of policies yeah. that should include people with disabilities so that they feel comfortable in the workplace and that they're given an opportunity to succeed and thrive.
1: I remember hearing about um you know the adjustments that were made at the high court around you know the famous image that people have i think of barristers and lawyers is you know trundling along with uh, crates and printed papers and and I understand that you're able to do a lot of things using technology to support your role in the High Court. Is that right? Is that um, something? Yeah, I
2: was very lucky. The judge I worked for, Justice Hayne, he when I um, went to the court moved to a completely online practice. So we would take a trolley to court, but it was just as a backup.
1: And it had and you know, sandwiches in it. No, no, we
2: don't. You don't eat in the court. <laughs> okay. but, um, but you would. Yeah, but he he worked primarily online. And he embraced technology and in a way, he probably embraces technology more than even I do. I mean, I quite like a pen and paper for Mm. some things. And and he is very
1: comfortable working on an iPad uh, Mm. with a stylus, so I Mm. still haven't quite adapted to using absolutely electronic everything maybe showing my age but
2: uh, some people who work in that world can really just work totally electronically
0: So a lot of what you're talking about in terms of um, reasonable adjustment or just adjustments if we want to call them that is not just about the actual adjustment but it's about the culture and the attitude that goes along with making those adjustments from others around you and also ensuring that it's some people think it's just about the person and being able to do the work but it should be and I believe if I've read the act correctly it's more about people having access to all aspects of the workplace which would include you know the lunchroom the Christmas party and the work that you are supposed to be doing because we know that access to all of that other social part of the work and the cultural part of the work is what it helps to build stakeholder engagement and networking and all of that sort of stuff. So would you say that we need to start focusing more on access to the workplace and everything that relates to the workplace as a whole rather than just the job?
2: I think it's really important to differentiate discrimination at all and make sure we don't discriminate against people and you can discriminate against people by treating them unequally or treating them the same and there's an unequal outcome. And what is good employment practice. It's a bit like saying well, I'll do the absolute minimum for my building to comply with the relevant regulations yep, yep. or I'll have a building that everyone can thrive in by having everything that they need. And I think what's really needed in an employment context is to focus upon that notion of having or being an employer of choice where people come and thrive. And that includes people with disability. And we know that over 80% of disability is invisible. Mm. A lot of it's episodic in nature. A uh, considerable amount of it, there's stigma in, in revealing and discussing. We also know that of the approximately 4.4 4 million Australians living with disability, which is just over 18% of the population, there's also 47.3% of the population identifies as having some sort of chronic health condition. Mm. So when you have open policies relating disabilities and medical conditions and chronic health and all, all those issues you open yourself up to, to not only people working for you who may not otherwise work for anyone or be able to, but also those employees who are with you, staying with you for longer, mm-hmm. thriving in your workplace, being promoted, mm-hmm. and throughout their life being a really good and valuable
0: contributor to you and society more
2: generally.
0: Yeah. yeah, it really goes to that employee value proposition at the moment with the tight labor market. I think you've just phrased that excellently, Ben. Thank you. Yeah.
1: And it's about, as you say, it's about surviving or thriving. And You know, you've, you've yeah. talked about loyalty, productivity, you know, that's where you get your best out of people when they're, you know, you know, you've, we've all worked in those teams where, where things are humming. And people are bouncing off each other and, and doing their best work so there is that aspect of inclusion i think as well that you were talking about there carol as well that i think is is critical and i mean you've worked in so many different workplaces ben i mean you've you've had that international experience tell us what it was like um you must have been quite young were you when you jetted off to oxford and um tell yeah that's pretty brave uh, yeah. i was a student in New York, so I didn't work in New York. I did work a
2: little bit in Oxford. I used to sort of you get a graduate teaching position to get yourself a little bit more funding and you sort of provide tutorials in yeah. undergraduate subjects. That was uh, really positive. Uh, I did get off very young. Yeah. It was perhaps the most reckless thing I've ever done. <laughs> yeah. I've done the Perth yeah. and swim with three friends, so that was that's equally reckless. That's but, epic. Um, I have, it was reckless in that I didn't really think out how I would live away from home. Just the very basics of making sure I had dinner each night was things I really did overlook. Because uh, I was living in a college where I had a sort of ability to get food, I'd, go, I'd, I'd just go to the dining hall. But you do realise when you throw yourself in a circumstances without supports, just how important those informal supports are to enabling you to really thrive,
1: particularly from a rehabilitation sense. And yeah. I probably um, was
2: deeply humbled by a realisation that when people have accidents or acquire disability during their life, when they're discharged from hospital and sent time where they do not have good support networks around them, it is incredibly difficult for them mm. to get their lives back in order. And I was very, very lucky because I had a a family and a support network around me, which mm. meant that I could. And, and
1: that's off. That can be easily overlooked. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think it was a, it was a
2: wonderful lesson for me in terms of it was humbling. So, yeah. 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 To really realise just how much you yeah. didn't realise some of these issues were, were challenging and to go overseas and to do it, particularly in the US healthcare system,
0: wow. was um, with a bit of snow, was, yeah,
2: it, was, it was a bit different.
0: Yeah, I found that incredible that you'd lived in New York and you'd lived in um, England, and yet one of your articles I read talked a lot about how there was very limited support in our own nation's capital in Canberra, um, but then you'd lived in these places overseas. I found that You know quite troubling that in our very own backyard there weren't those supports for you and you would really have to challenge yourself to move back to canberra
2: yeah i think our love is i've been in two ndis trial sites in my life i was in the canberra trial, I was in the melbourne trial and i got back to perth and i was just rolling it out and that's the last place to pick it up and and it is is does take a while sort of for those seedlings to grow in terms of a the service mechanism and, and in Campbell, when I was there, it was really at a very early stage of what they were trying to do. So, I think it was um, maybe different now. So, I don't want to sort of tar them by a historical brush of what has occurred, but what is definitely um, apparent to me is that employment is the byproduct of a disability policy system that works well at an individual but also at a societal level
1: mm-hmm.
2: and so when you have good support if you need that support and I do um, you often can thrive when you don't it's really tough mm-hmm. and it's, 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 not a, it's not fun when you can't get the support you need and, and it's something why we really do need to focus upon getting Functioning markets and systems for people with disabilities to acquire services and to be able
1: to have that concept of yeah. meaningful choice and control. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is an interesting way to put it, Ben. That employment is a byproduct of a functioning system, uh, disability support system, uh, and perhaps that's why it's such a good yardstick, you know, measure to look at. Uh, if you're getting, you know, and and why we should be so focused on employment, because if we, if we're cracking that as we should be, then you know we know we we've got a a, a disability service system that is um, doing its job and enabling um, you know the 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 full uh, participation of of uh, citizens really. Um, yes,
0: starting mm. from a young age, you know, if you look mm. at. Um, for me, I like to talk about it in terms of historical disadvantage. If you've got a, you know, a three-year-old starting preschool with disability, um, and they're not receiving the supports they need. Through their schooling and then into, you know, tertiary, they they may not even make it to tertiary education or qualifications because of that lack of um, support, both formal and informal. Um, you then have a historical disadvantage, and then you don't have access to that byproduct, as you're speaking mm-hmm. about, in terms of employment or different levels of employment. So um, we talk about that you know, the historical disadvantage and also the low expectations of people with disability. And that can start at a very young age. Mm. Um, For you, Ben, you didn't acquire your disability until your late teens. Do you have any concept about that, um, not having a disability? I know you talked earlier about the built environment or that sort of... um, you know, the, the accessibility side of things, but how do you think you were perceived as a person without disability and now with disability? Do you think that had some sort of impact?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think uh, I think you realise with time the difference in perception and in some ways by moving into interst- internationally to live, mm-hmm. you actually then, where no one really knew who you were or your background, because if you in your local area and you've had an accident, everyone knows you've had an accident so they know your past. But it's quite different to be overseas where no one knows who you are Yeah, and they really do perceive you as being um, from a certain background. And, um, right. You know, you can be confused for a different sort of life circumstance quite easily and mm. stereotypes and those things all are very much apparent. There are stereotypes in Australia, though. I remember attending a function when I first got this job, and someone asked me why I
1: was there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you know, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm actually, the, I'm
2: actually um, here in my official capacity.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: it was, that sent me a nice message later on LinkedIn about, you know, sorry, too confused yeah. the situation. But uh, people do. Uh, stereotype a bit and and we do need to that's why we need to educate about disability in our schools in our post territory tertiary um, areas as well not just universities but also technical um, colleges and TAFE and things of that nature and we need to be mindful that the likelihood of a person graduating having graduated year 12 in Australia is half a person who does not
0: have well wow. wow, so that really so it's does six
2: percent yeah. relative to approximately 33 percent now that difference
1: accounts for a lot of challenges going forward because if you look at the, the types of roles that are being developed
2: a lot of them require post tertiary qualifications now hmm. so you can't just say give a person that job you've actually got to give them the skill set to get Difficult. that job yeah. yeah. and those conversations about pathways take time they take a really insightful policy analysis into the lives of people with disability mm. but they also require in a sense a sense of vulnerability where all sides can have a conversation about what their concerns are so that you can deal with the underlying issue to achieve a better
1: outcome for everyone ben how, how important was it for you um i know you went from uh you know really being passionate about uh pursuing a, a career in medicine um and then you moved across into into the legal sphere but you know did you have uh advice or guidance or or a mentor or, or a career coach, or what, or how did you, was it, or was it just a practical, practical thing? Like, what made you, um, make the moves that you did? Um, given you had a, I think, a particular inclination towards the sciences, uh, from the sound of things, from my understanding. So, and, 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 and I suppose what would be the, I think, when we're thinking about people with disability, um, particularly, but perhaps all young people, that aspect of career coaching and, and support and, you know, being able to change your change your direction if you need to.
2: So when I uh, first had my accident, they actually recommended I go into mathematics. Mathematics. Um, so I was quite mathematical, and, yeah. and they, they, they suggested I should go off and become an actuary. Now, I'd never met John Walsh. I don't know. Oh, there but, you go. I'm sure the career coach didn't know who John Walsh was, but yeah. um, they were like, oh, you know, you should be an actuary. And then I sort of decided, oh, I... I interesting sort of health and anatomy and like I'll do medicine and then I kind of fell into law. Now that's not always the best way of explaining how one should pursue a career by just falling into it. But I actually did. But what I did find is that by engaging with my studies was a way of participating in the community because when I went to uni each day I'd see people, have colleagues and friends and if I went to class, then what I would virtually do is you would, you know, create a network of support for yourself. And I did a double degree in, sort of, in finance and law and economics and was a lot big part of that. And, and so what you sort of do is by attending class and being a participant, mm. you grow, gain a bit of a network. And, mm. and that's one of the, the benefits or one of the key aspects of sort of trying to build a a social circle for people is to have interests and Mm. and to be be out in the community and and in a a sense my outlet was to just go to uni every day yeah but i could yeah so i always tried to attend class if i could and there'd be other people there and you say hi to people and you're the person who had the some Food thoughts on horrifically bad wedges? We're not shy, ch-
0: sort of born every day. <laughs> They're the think... things that bind us, aren't they? Like, not literally as well as metaphorically, if you're talking about bad wedges, but um, that, yeah, human I mean, inter- that human interaction is so critically important for all of us, you know. So. Yeah, and you
2: get to know people, and, and some of the people, I met. Mean, are... are... You know, some of my dearest friends, and I don't see them mm. that often now. You sort of when you run into them, you feel yeah. very, very comfortable, and part of that. that is just that shared experience. And friendship is a, is a lot about shared experience.
0: Yeah.
2: And um, if you're in your own home and you can't leave your own home, or it's a struggle to leave your own home, it's hard to have shared experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That, uh, that um, uh, your ultra endurance uh, uh, feat of swimming from. Perth to Rottnest Island. I think people would be interested to hear a bit more about that, Ben. I mean, uh, just for those who don't know, how far is it from Perth to Rottnest Island? And what, what on earth were you thinking? And was it in any way related to your university friends, I wonder? Or uh, It was. Well, I took, yeah, some
2: university friends and some school friends. Uh, it's about 22 kilometres. Oh. Uh, oh, God. It was pretty rough. And to be honest, it wasn't the brightest idea. My goal from just doing was just
1: solidly drinking seawater for a couple of hours. Yeah. Uh, and look,
2: my friends handled the rough bits; I handled the more sort of sedate bits. But it was it was something I, I'd had a, a rough couple of years beforehand, and I just wanted to um, just make it even rougher, do something to sort of change uh, change it up a bit. And it did make me. Um, train quite hard and yep. participate in a different area than i have previously done and the shame was, was that in swimming so much my shoulder sort of played up a bit right at the
1: end and, oh, right. and
2: one of the doctors said to me was, so they just said to me words to the effect of if you want to keep swimming this much you'll probably have to have something done to your shoulder or you can just swim a lot less and You'll be fine. Like, so I just swam a lot. less. A lot less. <laughs> um, <laughs> mm. But and that uh, and the funny thing about it is, is I hated swimming at school. Yeah. It was the it was the sport I absolutely hated the most. I was I swam like a stone. Mm. I still <laughs> swim like a stone. Yeah. But, but to do it was enjoyable and it was about participating and yeah. and I think when I told my friends that no, they thought I was they thought I was joking. Um, yeah, but they participated and they were great, and we you know got some good photos and some good banter out of it. But it was cold, wet, and
0: rough. That's incredible. Um, and it was, I mean, it's always a bit you know rough
2: at the Indian Ocean, but it was a rough year. Yeah. And I do just remember perhaps thinking at times when I was in the water that this was not my finest hour or my brightest yeah. moment in yeah. terms of deciding to do it.
1: You, you do so well.
0: Lucky you've got. Yeah. Go Lucky yeah. you've got so many other fine moments and brightest yeah. hours, I think, Ben.
1: Yeah. Because what what you do strike me as somebody who sets big goals for themselves. Um, um you know, like it sounds like a, a a lifetime of doing that. That so far, I mean, what what's next for uh, Ben Gauntlet, or is that um, because uh, when does your um, when does your tenure as uh, disability rights commissioner end, and and what are you? um what have you yet to achieve in that role that you'd you'd like to bring forward
2: yeah i've got another year and a half yeah in this role um i guess i I would like to really shape the employment landscape a bit Uh, i'd like to shape the housing Mm. landscape as well Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah we have an employment project called includability where we try and model good employment practices. Um, we also, the housing project, we did something with Monash University in relation to um, designing houses to be more um, functional for people with disability in a really aesthetically pleasing way though, where yeah. we really understood that um, good design can actually be really engaging and attractive and have enormous amenity. And with, I guess, all these areas, I guess one of the reasons why I'm quite passionate about housing is a lot of my career decisions were actually dictated by, we talk about um, access to care, but also housing. Mm. I did actually get offered, or I had a lot of opportunities which I couldn't take because I couldn't find anywhere to live. Mm. And so when I was a junior lawyer or even a junior barrister, I actually used to live in Accommodation associated with universities, so that I could have access to an accessible room, mm. because I couldn't find anywhere that was accessible. Mm. Wow.
1: Do you, do, uh, what do you think of the uh, specialist disability accommodation um, aspect of the NDIS? Uh, are you are you seeing? I think that's
2: in, yeah. important, but I also think it's really the most important to just the
1: national construction code. Yep just needs to have
2: mandated accessibility considerations. Yep. And what people fail to understand is, is that a person who lives in an accessible property is, I think, four times more likely to be employed than yep. if they done in an accessible, inaccessible property and they have accessibility needs. But also, the argument that has not been picked up, which is, fundamental in this area is the avoidable care costs that are saved by good design Mm. that is that where a person can live in the community they often require so much less care than if they were in hospital or in some sort of institution they can build a better life Mm. is something that had not been measured in looking at amending the National Construction Code and the measurements they took were for people who were some getting on in years and requiring a little bit more care. Well, you don't know if you're going to have a big accident or illness or something of that type. You just, you run it. There's no way of predicting it.
1: Yeah, that's yeah.
2: But when it does happen, you really do need an accessible property to live you and your family and your friends. And I just think that, um, this is an area where the whole of Australia needs to engage and the inability to, um, uh, pick up the accessibility amendments to the National Construction Code is deeply concerning mm. is, that some states have had that inability.
1: Yeah. Is is there opportunity um, right now, Ben, to influence that? I mean, I think, like you say, that those avoidable care costs, um, if they haven't been quantified, they, somebody really needs to try to do that. I mean, I think you've seen that with um uh, and that's what Dylan Olcott is with the NDIS at the moment trying to point out to everybody is the the cost benefits to um, the investment in people, and the, the cost um, benefits are, are tremendous in terms of the return on investment uh, for the NDIS spend. But I think you're right again. Uh, what are those avoidable care costs that uh, the community are paying for right now? And They don't even know it because um, yeah, the, the people aren't able to return home. People are. Um, blocking expensive uh, high-care beds when they needn't be. Uh, I yeah. mean, th- these, are, these are huge costs um, and, and you're quite right. We need to start making a change to these national uh, construction codes. Um, so I think that would be a tremendous uh, so, contribution.
2: So we have in terms of all states other than Western Australia and New South Wales, we accepted the change, which is fantastic it's a modest change it's it's 22 times more expensive to renovate yep. than to build in up front Yep. but also what's not facilitated we have enormous labor shortages for construction workers but also care workers mm. and so we should be doing everything we can to minimize that Yep. Mm. and so we do need to have a really forward-thinking policy where we have a vision for what we want in australia and that vision understands that we have an ageing population, that that people will have varying amounts of disability through their lives and we need to have a housing profile that is fit for purpose and it's not just social housing. The majority of people with disabilities do not live in social housing, Um, they live in private dwellings, I think over 90% and so we need to have a really good um, well-considered housing policy that's fit for purpose for generations. Mm.
1: Yeah. Yes. Look, I think I think that's a, a great place to to probably end it. I know you've got a got another appointment. We're really grateful for your time. I mean, I think uh, you've got a lot to do in the next eighteen months. Clearly, um, <laughs> we're we're really happy uh, and keen to to support uh, any of those uh, initiatives too at the Disability Trust and more broadly through the work that's going on in the sector with National Disability Services Alliance Twenty and other other um, good works that are going on so um yeah this is a, a project our mission and vision is of inclusion we know how valuable that is to australia and the um our, our broader uh community so um i just want to thank you ben for joining us today i don't know if there's anything you want to say to to wrap it up but i thought that was a pretty powerful um, powerful way to finish it thank you
2: no, thanks, Ed. Thanks, Carolyn. Uh, I think um, we need a, a whole of community response to ensure that all people with disability feel included and podcasts mm. like this are a really important
1: way of building awareness. Mm.
2: They're one brick in a mm. rather large wall that has to be built.
1: Mm. But
2: each brick matters yeah. and really important that I think across Australia we we hear the message from people in different life circumstances and disability is part of that but also intersectional characteristics need to be considered with that to ensure that we hear the true voice of all Australians and within that hopefully we can then build a better country that we all want to be part of.
0: Yeah um that is a really great point actually Ben. I think the intersectionality between disability, um, I think disability is the only one of those um, diversity groups in inverted commas that we talk about that cuts across um all of the intersections of um life is disability um can i just also thank you so much for your time today thank you for sharing so much um and thank you for really articulating um through statistics and through experience um and through your your work that you're doing um the importance and the impact of uh inclusion and employment and um Access for people with disability at the beginning of the show Ed started by saying we're going to meet the man behind the myth Can I just say that um, we've actually met the legend behind that myth so um, Thank you so much for sharing and thank you for working so hard to um, Change the lives in particular of people with disability in Australia